I love going verse by verse through the Bible. Luke is as thorough an account of the gospel um, and it's, it's uh, known for its precision compared to maybe the other g- gospels. Not that the other ones are not correct, of course they are, but there's a precision that Luke brings. It's like, um, like we talked about, it might even have been used as a legal document for Paul when he stood there before Rome. Um, and so it's articulate and, uh, and one of the things that's rewarding, and I, I, don't, I don't like to look up Greek words just to be fancy, um, uh, but the Greek uh, is so colorful and helpful to understand the original uh, intent of scripture and what, what, was, what was being said. So we do dive into Greek words once in a while, uh, and that's kind of fun, especially with Luke, because Greek, uh, for Luke, he was quite articulate and had a, quite a vocabulary that um, only Paul would be sort of his equal when it comes to the use of the Greek language. So last Wednesday, we finished with Mary's genealogy, um, the genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter three. And we begin Luke chapter four, verse one. And Jesus, now pause right there. I know, two words. Uh, <laughs> but um, Jesus mentioned here first in this chapter, um, uh, who was mentioned last in the last chapter? In chapter three, uh, you know, this genealogy, it says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And Jesus, wait, now, what's going on there? Now, that's an interesting thing, uh, because remember, there were no chapter breaks in the original, um, you know, uh, Bible writings, um, these chapter breaks were added centuries later. So you'd read, you know, and, and you know, Adam, who was the son of God. Now, what's that all about? Was Adam the son of God, like Jesus the son of God? Well, yes and no. Um, the, 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 the no part is Adam was the son of God in the sense that he, he had no father. He was created by God the Father and was, um, you know, a product of, of God's creating humanity. And so in that sense, Adam is compared to or talked to as if he's the son of God. You say, is that a coincidence? I don't believe so because Jesus is the son of God, uh, the, big, the big one, the most important one. But I want you to see something that maybe others might miss here because um, this, this link between Adam and Jesus is kind of embedded throughout scripture and you should uh, make sure and note that. Why would Luke go through the line of Mary all the way back to Adam? If you remember the genealogy of the Gospel of Matthew, it went all the way back to Abraham, but it didn't go beyond, uh, before Abraham. Um, does anybody, who can guess, why did Matthew's Gospel only go back to Abraham? Anybody? Somebody said it. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is really directed toward the Jewish people. Uh, the Jews, that's all they cared about is from Abraham and onward, their father. Um, now in Luke's gospel, um, he goes all the way back to Adam, the very beginning. And um, there's a connection that I want you to know about Adam and Jesus that Paul uh, spends a lot of time talking about if you put all the pieces together. Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 15. It says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. In other words, before Moses gave the law, sin still was there. It was still deadly. Uh, If a man sinned, he still was guilty of sin, and the repercussion of sin is death still. But once the law came, um, there was a higher uh, level of responsibility for humanity to own sort of their sin. So for until the law, was, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. The law made us, it's, it's almost like you could drive 100 miles an hour on I-5 if there were no laws. Uh, but once the law comes, it's kind of like you're guilty. Uh, 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 that's something I probably know about. But anyway, uh, I shouldn't say that. But yeah, but nevertheless, verse 14 Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Who's Adam a figure of him who was to come? Um, Now, by the way, sin is sin. Uh, No matter when and where you do it, it's all sin. But the Bible does seem to make a differentiation between the sin before Moses and and then after the law was given. There's a differentiation right here. 
Now, here in Romans 5, 12 through 15, you say, well, Brett, that's a little confusing, but let's keep reading. In verse, in verse 15, it says this as we keep reading, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that's the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, by, uh, which is by one man, Jesus Christ has abounded unto many. So this is saying by one man, that's Adam, sin entered in the world. By one man, Jesus, grace entered the world. This is the point that Paul's making. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that Adam, he bombed out there in the garden. The Adam bomb is what we call that. Uh, there he sinned in the garden and what a jerk. You know, If I were there, I wouldn't have eaten of the apple. Um, one of the things you need, or the fruit, <laughs> one of the things you need to know is Adam was our best foot forward. This, that's one of the things the Bible does kind of show us that Adam created in you know, total perfection. He had the best likelihood of all people to do well. Um, he was sort of the Michael Jordan of humanity when it came to not sinning. Um, you know, he was the best of the best and, and yet he even failed. That's, that's kind of the implication of the Bible. Now then um, you go from Romans, Paul talking about this, that, you know, by one man, sin entered the world, Adam. And then by another man, Jesus, grace would enter the world. Um, both uh, started out perfect. Adam was perfect for a while until he sinned. Jesus started out perfect, but he stayed perfect. That's kind of important to note. Now, if you flip a few pages forward to 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> then Paul says this, for as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this is important. It means that Adam was the one who sinned, which then from that point forward in history, human, humanity, Adam and Eve's d descendants, would all be born in sin. Um, and that we would have a sin nature. Um, that's why, you know, uh, the, David would talk about, um, you know, I was uh, formed in my mother's womb in sin. Like I, I was just a sinful being from the very beginning. Um, and that's because the, the sort of the, if you would, the DNA of sin was embedded to our genetics. Uh, that's just the way it was because of Adam. Adam did that. So because one man sinned to the world, um, and now, now be careful, don't say, see, it's not my fault. Adam made me do it. Uh, don't say that. It's still your fault. Um, Adam was the best we had to offer. The truth to, to, um, is that once Adam sinned, humanity changed. Now we're born in sin. But because we live in sin, we feel like we need, need to try to figure it out ourselves and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and save ourselves. But even that's sinful. If you're trying to be righteous, if you're looking for righteousness within yourself, even that's sinful. Like Charles Haddon Spurgeon did a sermon on that. To, to look for righteousness in my own self is unrighteousness in and of itself. Uh, sin begets sin and it just gets worse, snowballs as the years go by. Humanity, we just find ourselves in sin. And that's why we love not the first Adam for what he did, but the last Adam for what he did. Uh, go fast forward, 1 Corinthians 15. These, hopefully, if you want, you can jot these down or um, just remember these verses. So, so it was written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, now here's where we get into some really interesting stuff. What's Paul talking about? Um, you know, Paul was arguing that um, Adam was, um, you know, he was, breathe, he, he was born into life and he was given the breath of life. Um, but that's all he had. But the last Adam, which we know as Jesus, it made a quickening spirit. That means to make someone alive, but not in a biological, physical kind of making alive, but a, a spiritual kind of life. Now, this is where we're getting into some language that maybe you're starting to, have you ever been told, you know, uh, you must be born again? Um, that's an important thing. That's, that's what becoming a Christian is, by the way. Um, I, I kind of miss that, you know, terminology. I, I know Christians back in the study, man, are you born again? And people are like, what are you talking about? Remember, Jesus came to Nick at night. Uh, that's not a TV show on television. Um, Nicodemus at nighttime, Jesus. And, and, um, and Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus. He said, what? You mean you have to enter into your mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus is like, oh, must, are you really a teacher in Israel? Are you kidding me? Like, like the guy's like, what are you talking about? I don't understand this. Well, this is where Paul's getting into this idea. We were born into physical life. Um, everybody gets that, uh, the breath of life. 
Howbeit, Jesus was made a quickening spirit. It goes on in verse 46. Howbeit, that um, was not the first, which, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is um, the Lord from heaven. So we're doomed because we were born in sin because of our flesh and our sin nature. That's just the way you were first born. You were born into that. But because of Christ, he is the quickening spirit, verse 45, um, that makes our dead, our dead spirit uh, that was born in sin, uh, you know, unsaved and not well able to go to heaven. Christ, the last Adam, came to get, breathe new life in us. And that's why you must be born again. Salvation uh, does not come by good works, by being better, by going to church or paying tithes or signing up for a membership of a church, it comes through that quickening work of Jesus Christ. When you uh, accept Christ, you can become born again into new life. All of that is linked to um, this idea of the first Adam who was born into sin uh, in life, breath of life, but death brought by Adam, but a quickening spirit by Jesus. The reason I go into all that is because when you read through the Bible, you come into this Adam discussion and then the comparison of Adam and Jesus, you're like, what do those two things have to do with each other? That's why, why would Jesus be called the last Adam? Because the first Adam bombed out, the last Adam solved the problem of the Adam bomb. Uh, by uh, being the quickening spirit that brings us back to life. And that language is kind of threaded throughout the Bible. So hopefully that'll be help you, helpful when you're reading through the Bible. Uh, um, okay, word number three. Sorry, uh, we gotta keep moving here. So it says there, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness being 40 days tempted of the devil and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. <laughs> Boy, I guess 40 days of fasting. Now, um, where is this? Uh, just just kind of interesting. I always like geography, you know, of the story. So Jesus went from, you know, went to be baptized of John the Baptist. And if you're in Israel, the northern region of the Dead Sea, it's, it's out very much of a desert region out there. Um, if you want to go to the beautiful spots in Israel, in my opinion, you go up to the the headwaters of the Jordan River. If you go up, you know, toward the Sea of Galilee and even north of the Sea of Galilee, when you go up, you know, the, the Golan Heights area, um, uh, which is really close to the, well, it's at the border of Syria. Um, some of those beautiful places in all of Israel are right there in the northern region um, where rockets are flying across even as we speak. Uh, they're near the Banyas River. At the very top of that map is some of the most beautiful places in all of Israel. Um, but the Dead Sea area is pretty much dead. There's a lot of desert and stuff like that. It's barren. Um, but um, when you get down there, there's a place you can drive by. When we go to Petra, we drive pretty close to this area near the Dead Sea on the Jordanian side of the uh, border. Uh, you have to cross the border at the Allenby Crossing there uh, in, in Israel, and you can go and you can kind of see it's, it's starting to look pretty desertous around there. Um, there, are, there is a place where if you're in Jordan, you can go uh, and um, be baptized. Uh, but that's the Jordan River, the mighty Jordan River right there. Uh, by the time you get to the Dead Sea, it makes the Tualatin River look pristine. Uh, and it's, it's more of a, like a mud puddle down there. Um, but that's why you don't see tour groups going there to be baptized very often. Because, But that's, that's, is that something? This is where Jesus got baptized. Now, um, probably the river was much higher back in the first century and the water flowed more freely and the river was bigger. When you read some of the stories like Elijah and Elisha crossing the Jordan River, you're like, oh, they parted the water like the Red Sea with his mantle, you know, if you remember. Um, you're like, well, why didn't they just wade across it or just take a little dip, you know, and whatever. Uh, no, well, the river was much bigger back in ancient times, FYI kind of thing. But, um, but you know, geographically, um, it's on the west side of the Dead Sea, the barren desert, and that's where Jesus is. So now here in Luke, after he's baptized, he, he goes out even sort of further into the wilderness area where he's fasting. Um, and we've been talking about that because Jesus talks about this from time to time in the gospel narrative that, you know, these certain demons would come out by prayer and fasting. 
Um, fasting is not one of my favorite spiritual disciplines. So I'm just gonna admit that uh, right here now. I, I do it from time to time. Uh, I found it to be really effective. Um, when I was a kid, it was really trendy to fast. And I remember reading, you know, God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. And I remember just being kind of inspired. And, you know, uh, I would do, you know, and, and, you know, doing like more than just one day sometimes is actually kind of amazing. I learned sort of the art of fasting. Um, uh, you know, now there's all these trendy things about you know, the fasting diets and stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, when you're talking about fasting, you can fast one meal, you can fast for a day, or you can fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, I've never done the 40 day and 40 night one. God bless you, go ahead and do that if you feel so led. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, the, the trend of fasting was there and there were a bunch of people in our church starting to do these 40 day fasts. And I remember just watching them become skeletal and thinking, nah, I think I'll just trust the Lord and pray. Pray without fasting uh, in this particular case. But, but, uh, but uh, no, I, I think that there's people that have been blessed by even those longer fasts. Uh, one guy almost died, by the way. Uh, he was doing it all wrong. Um, if you're gonna fast, you have to be careful. But um, uh, by the way, that little book, God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace, is even though it was, really, I think, in the 70s, it's still really a good book when it comes to biblical fasting, not health food fasting or intermittent fasting for your abs and stuff. Um, but if you're actually looking for more of the spiritual biblical context of fasting, uh, that's a great book. Another thing to note here is this uh, 40 days. Um, if you're a Bible student, you'll notice <clears throat> in the Bible that numbers have a strange connection to meaning. The Hebrew alphabet is associated with numbers and all those numbers have meaning in the Bible. And there's layer upon layer of interesting things uh, in the Bible. When you come to the number 40, the, the word 40 appears um, 158 times in the King James translation, the number 40 generally in the Bible symbolizes a period of testing, trial, or probation. Testing, trial, or probation. Um, it also can mean a generation of, a pers of, a, of humanity. Uh, there's different generations as defined by the Bible. The 40-year generation, remember a generation had to pass of the children of Israel before they could go into the promised land? 40 years. Um, there's also a 70-year generation. There's also a 100-year generation but uh, those are um, interesting other discussions. Um, think about all the 40s in the Bible. Uh, God flooded the earth and it rained um, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses's life was split into three 40-year sections. He got to 120. His first 40 years, he was in Egypt. His second 40 years, he was a shepherd in the backside of the Midianite land. The last 40 years of his life, he spent leading the children of Israel um, out of Egypt and toward the promised land. Um, Moses was on Mount Sinai for two separate occasions, both for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, God's law allowed a wrongdoer in certain cases to be beaten with uh, whips, a scourging, 40 lashes um, as part of their punishment, Deuteronomy 25 verses one through three. That was the law of God, 40 lashes. Now the Jews would later change that to 39 lashes. Um, does anybody know why? just in case they miscounted, right? Uh, if you gave a guy 41, you'd have been breaking the law. Um, so they wanted to make sure they didn't uh, miscount. So they went for 39 lashes, uh, which explains some things in the Bible. He also spent, uh, Moses, um, Joshua, I should say, in Numbers you know, 13, 25, he sent spies for 40 days to investigate the land that God promised the Israelites. Um, the children of Israel were punished by the wandering wilderness for 40 years. Elijah went for 40 days without food or water on Mount Horeb. Um, uh, and then Jesus, of course, would uh, spend 40 days uh, in his uh, fasting here. Um, there's so many more. The prophet Jonah warned Nineveh in 40 days, uh, your destruction would come. And then they all repented. So it didn't come. But, um, but interesting that 40 is such a number uh, in the Bible and it always is linked somehow to those kinds of themes, a period of testing, trial, or probation, which is kind of interesting. Um, now notice in verse two, it says, and afterward he hungered. And I would say sort of, if I were being sort of um, smart aleck, I'd say, uh, you think? For, yeah, 40 days of fasting, yeah, uh, he, I'd be hangry by that time. Um, not hungered, I'd be hangry. But, um, but Jesus, it was, it, was, it was at that time, uh, not during, but afterward. That's interesting. What does that mean? I think that uh, if you've ever fasted for more than a few days, have you ever noticed like on the third day, it becomes easy? Like it, it shifts into easiness where you almost forget to eat. You can almost get to a place of forgetting to eat after a certain time of fasting. I wonder if Jesus was doing great, you know, and out in the wilderness and seeking the Father. 
but it was at his moment when suddenly it says he hungered. That, that was a moment of his perhaps greatest um, vulnerability. Was Jesus vulnerable? Anybody wanna answer that question? He was. Um, one of the things I like to say at this moment in the Bible is temptate, for temptation to be temptation, it has to be temptation. But that's not very smart to say that. No, for temptation to be temptation, it has to be temptation. And Jesus was going to be tempted in the wilderness by the devil, that's what the Bible says. So he would be tempted, um, which temptation does not equal sin, does it? It's the engaging in that temptation that suddenly moves it into uh, a sinful moment. So, um, so now we're gonna see um, you know, uh, temptation number one uh, given to Jesus out in the wilderness. We're gonna call this number one, stone into bread. Verses uh, three and four is where we pick that up. Verse three, it says, and the devil said unto him, if thou be the son of God, command this stone that it may be uh, made bread. And Jesus answered him saying, it is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Um, of course, um, Jesus, uh, there's so much here. Uh, this is Jesus's physical needs. He's hungry. And uh, Satan tries to dangle the answer to his physical needs. That's one of the areas where Satan will tempt you and me, our physical needs. Um, now, there's something here that uh, you, you might miss if you're just kind of reading. Um, it seems that Satan is questioning whether Jesus is God, but there is an interesting little language thing in the original Greek uh, that you, Luke uses, and it has to do with this idea of the conditional class use of the word if, conditional class use. Well, the word if, um, a, uh, um, you know, if you look it up in the, in the Greek uh, and, and, and which class is being used of the word if, uh, the Greek word here, uh, I, um, uh, a primary particle of conditionality is what the word is. But the definition is, um, you know, if, if it be so, or since, um, the word since there probably is the best translation there, which, which um, it might be shocking, but it doesn't seem, even though Satan is always questioning the word of God, and you'd think he'd be questioning the deity of Jesus, um, but that's probably not what's happening here. What's probably happened is Satan um, is actually saying, you know, since indeed you are the son of God, that's the way this probably should read if you go to the uh, Greek scholars who know this stuff. Um, since indeed you are the son of God, does Satan know that Jesus is the son of God? I think he does. So I don't think he's actually questioning that. Um, if Jesus is God, it's not a supposition, but an affirmation almost. So Christ's deity is the basis for this first temptation. Since you're the son of God, tempting Jesus because he is God is kind of what's going on. Not to try to prove that he is God, um, but Satan's gonna say, well, you know, since you're the son of God, then um, we see the temptation to turn stone into bread, um, dealing with Jesus's physical needs. Um, by the way, in each temptation, Jesus would use that phrase, it is written. What a reminder for you and me. When you're tempted by the devil um, to pull out the sword of the spirit and be ready to do battle because that's what temptation is, it's a battle. And I hope when you're dealing with the temptations that you are wrestling with, that you have some good scriptures. Do you have some good battle scriptures for the things you're tempted in? Because that's the way we as Christians, if we follow Jesus, each temptation, Jesus would use the word. And by the way, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Um, uh, and, um, and it's just, uh, you know, uh, interesting to me that Jesus knew this, you know, just kind of had it memorized, ready to go right on the tip of his tongue. It says there in Deuteronomy eight, he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So the context of this is manna, bread in the wilderness for the children of Israel, physical food, but it required them to trust God spiritually to feed them. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, you know, I'm gonna trust the Father. Uh, for my provision. I'm not gonna look to you for this. Um, so uh, remember they couldn't store up the manna. They couldn't keep it overnight because it would rot and breed worms, but they would have to daily receive manna and trust that daily the manna would be there. 
Um, so the Lord um, taught you and me in our Lord's Prayer, taught us in Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is something you and I have to trust the Lord for too, the daily food provision. Um, by the way, speaking of provision, in, in a day where inflation is on the rise, uh, a lot of people are financially strained, some people living paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, one of the things we have to do is remember, kind of take it day by day. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord, trusting Jesus to provide. God's name is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And Jesus taps into that, uh, resisting the devil. And so all, every time Jesus is tempted in these three temptations, notice that Jesus is resisting with the word of God. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will what? Flee. So is the devil gonna flee from him right this moment? Nope, not yet. So um, I wonder if that means you need to resist more than once. Man, I tried to resist one time. Um, you gotta keep resisting is the idea here. So Jesus is gonna do that. He's modeling for us. So um, you might say, oh no, it didn't work. He spoke the word and Satan's still right there. Um, persistence in resisting the devil is kind of the, um, the, the mark here. Okay, so the first temptation was stone into bread. Temptation number two um, is the kingdoms of the world. Look at verse five. Um, there it says in verse five, and the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed him unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment uh, of time. How could he do that, Brett? How could, how could, what mountain in Israel can make you see all the, maybe there was no smog in those days. It was so clear you could see Paris from afar off. No. Um, no, I, I believe, um, you know, um, does Satan have power? Yeah, he has certain power. There's, we, we need to understand he doesn't have unlimited power. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's om, not omnip, omnipotent, uh, all-powerful. He, but he does have power. And uh, we shouldn't, you know, if, if Satan had enough power to go into heaven in the book of Job chapter one and hang out with God, I think he probably has enough power to kind of show sort of a, you know, big screen and, and you know, like to show uh, sort of in a, in a sort of whatever you want to call it, magical kind of way, look at all the kingdoms of the world. And, and it could be like a, a collage of all the kingdoms of the world. Um, you know, uh, could it be that Satan is not as limited to time and space in the same way that we are. Um, so showing the kingdoms uh, doesn't require being able to see it all at once uh, if you live outside of time and space. So there's some interesting things about that that tell us a little bit about what Satan is able to do. But he was able to uh, show Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. Um, not probably, most scholars, by the way, believe not just at that time and moment, but all the kingdoms for all time throughout all of history the kingdoms of the world. That's what they believe Jesus was tempted by there. Um, so uh, question before we read on, was Jesus tempted by this, the kingdoms of the world? Only a few of you answered that one. See, you're nervous now. <laughs> of course he is. For temptation to be temptation, it has to be temptation. Let's read on, verse six. Um, and the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all this, all, all, shall, uh, pardon me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Wow, this is so full of, of uh, you know, some interesting answers to the Bible. Um, you know, when people, when people say, well, you know, uh, if God loves the world and if God is good, then why are bad things happening in the world? Well, there's, this answers part of that. Who, who is the owner of this world right now? Well, that's, that's what this says. Satan, for this to be a real temptation, Satan has to have the title deed to planet earth. And, and here he's saying, if you've bowed down and worship me, I'll give you the title deed. I own it now. It, he even says, it was given to me. Question, who gave to Satan title deed to planet, planet earth? Adam in the garden, when he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, title deed, you know, the Lord gave to Adam and Eve the power to subdue the earth and to be over the animals and over the earth. But when Adam and Eve gave in, Satan was the one who received that title deed. Question for you guys that follow through the whole Bible, where does that title deed come up ultimately? Where do we see it? Book of Revelation. 
the, the scroll with the seven seals. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And John starts weeping because nobody's worthy to open the seven seals, which was a title deed document in those days. And each seal represent a requirement that would be, you know, a requirement to, to take possession of a property. Um, so that's what the whole book of Revelation is about really is Jesus coming and taking what is rightfully his from Satan himself. That will happen. Satan just wanted to give it to him a little early. Hey, here's a little early birthday present for you, Jesus. Does Satan know that the title deed to earth is never gonna be his to keep? Um, I don't know. I don't know that. Either he's really stupid, uh, which I'm not sure he is, um, or stubborn or hanging on to it as long as he possibly can. But, but here he almost thinks it's some kind of a bargaining chip. Hey, if you worship me as God, then I'll give you this title deed. It's kind of what he's saying. So um, this is important uh, for Jesus, you know, to 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 be tempted by this. He could sort of bypass some things, perhaps almost it would seem, uh, bypass the cross, bypass saving humanity. But all the kingdoms would be his. Um, if if but, but what would he have lost in taking that? Well, I think we would have been the losers in that one. Um, you know, if, if uh, somebody came up to you here in Portland, like let's say you came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Brett, I, I'd like to make you a, a deal you can't refuse. I'd like to sell you the Moda Center in Portland. And I would look at you and kind of think, hmm, are you wealthy enough to own how much? I'll, I'll sell you the Moda Center for $10,000. Wow, that'd be a good deal. But by this time, I think I'd be a little leery of you. You know, I'd be like, do you really? Ten, that's, too, that's a deal that's too good to be true. Um, if you look it up in 2023, the Moda Center is worth $503 million. It's one of the top uh, most expensive, you know, um, you know, NBA arenas, uh, other than the Chase Center, Golden State Warriors. I guess that's one and a half billion. But the Moda Center is is really fancy. So ten thousand dollars—that seems like a deal. Um, but um, but I would say this this seems like some kind of a scam. But that that in sense, uh, I think in a greater deal, Jesus knows that there's a scam here, and and he's not going to be giving in to this temptation. Satan is a liar and a deceiver, and I believe Jesus knows that. But nonetheless, I do believe Jesus, for this to be temptation, he had to be tempted to get this title deed back. It is a big deal. Who has the title deed to planet Earth? It's a big deal. But it's gotta be obtained correctly, not some Nigerian prince whose wealth is locked up and needs your help, if you know what I mean. Maybe you've been scammed by those people before. Um, Satan is like that. He has the power, he's got the title deed and the claim on earth. Um, by the way, uh, in Luke chapter four, notice his, his claim, what he has to give. In verse five, um, he says, he shows them all the kingdoms. In verse six, the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and glory of them. So you got kingdom and the glory and then the power also in verse six, power, glory, kingdom. That's what he's offering to Jesus. Does anybody remember how the end of the Lord's prayer goes? It's Matthew chapter six, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom uh, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Don't you love that? There's a connection here in the Lord's prayer. Satan offers to Jesus the kingdom, power, and glory. But uh, notice in the Lord's prayer, the first thing Jesus says, deliver me from, or lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil. Um, and this is what Satan offered Jesus, kingdom, power, and glory. But Jesus knew this wasn't legitimate. Um, but he legitimately does have the kingdom of this world. Um, this, let me just give you a few scriptures that remind us of who Satan really is in this world. And it explains a lot. John 14, 30, hereafter will I not talk much with you for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Jesus is calling Satan the prince of this world. John 16, 11, um, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged, that Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Paul the apostle said, in whom the God of this world, little g, by the way, um, uh, it's a fake false God, but little g, um, in, God, in, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them. Uh, interesting that uh, Paul the apostle calls Satan the God, little g, false God of this world. Um, and that should explain the atrocities in Israel today, the depravity of humanity. And, and it's not just in you know, the, what Hamas is doing, it's throughout all the ages, 
Humanity has done horribly sinful stuff. And it's because Satan is still the God, little g, fake God of this world. It explains a lot um, there when the Garden of Eden, the title deed was handed over. Um, so when we pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you know, on earth as it is heaven. We're praying for the millennial kingdom and, and, and we remember that it's the Lord's who's really is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, not Satan. Now, one of the things that I find interesting, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, did you say that part of the Lord's prayer? No, uh, have you ever noticed they shortened the Lord's prayer? Well, Brad, I, I, I looked it up. Um, you know, um, uh, you know Luke, Luke chapter 11, uh, we'll see the Lord's prayer taught in Luke 11, verse four, and forgive us our sins um, as we forgive our debtors, but lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the end. Um, why do the Roman Catholics quote that one? Well, it's an interesting thing about translation and which version of the Bible you use. Uh, either one, uh, King James, Matthew's gospel, reminds us that of this last part of that, the, the Lord's Prayer. For, um, you know, lead us not into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, amen. Um, why is that in the King James, but not in the, in the uh, I think it's in the, uh, not in the NIV version? in Matthew's gospel. So some of them have it, some of them don't. It gets back to the uh, translational issues of which older translations or the more uh, used or the multitudes of translations that were um, you know, used to uh, you know, quote the scripture. So um, you'll find it in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, the full account, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, amen. And that's why I like to use the longer version. Well, Brett, can I use the shorter version? Am I wrong to do that? No, because it's in other places in the Bible. It's okay to use the shorter version. It's not bad, but I enjoy using the full version because it's very end times oriented. We know that the coming kingdom that we're told to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is ultimately going to be Christ coming in kingdom power and glory. Uh, I love that. And Satan's gonna be totally done away with. That's one of my favorite parts of the Lord's Prayer. So um, all that to say, back to point number two, um, this is why Satan offers the kingdoms of the world, temptation of, of glory and dominion. That's what he dangles in front of Jesus. Um, by the way, Satan, that's really what he wants. We know what Satan wants. He wants to be worshiped as God. Um, in Isaiah chapter 14, let me just remind you of Satan, what he said way back in the, in the Isaiah prophecy days. Um, how... This is Isaiah sort of rhetorically uh, wondering at, at Lucifer, the fallen angel, Satan. Uh, he says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? That's, isn't that interesting? That's one of the things Satan wants to do, weaken the nations. We see that today, don't we? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit up also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. This is what Satan, Lucifer, wants out of his deal, um, which was his pride. Uh, he wants to be greater than God and it was that pride that was um, started in his heart did you notice in verse 13? For thou, Lucifer, hast said in thine heart. That's where this pride begins, by the way. It's in your heart. That's where Satan got it. But, um, but um, all that to say, this is why Satan is saying, bow down and worship me. This would have helped him achieve his goals way back when he was Lucifer, fallen as one of the most beautiful angels of all. Um, but Jesus, again, back to our text, Notice how Jesus res re responds, it is written. And again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 13, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shall swear by his name. Um, um, by the way, uh, Jesus quotes three times and each time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Was Deuteronomy Jesus's favorite book of the Old Testament? Um, have you ever noticed, I, now this might be a huge conjecture, but I wonder you know, if Jesus had recently been reading in Deuteronomy. The reason I ask that question is because have you ever noticed that when you're reading through the Bible in your own personal morning devotions, that what you read that morning applies to that day? You're like, wow, I read that this morning. 
Like how many times have you said that? If you're a Bible reader, which we all should be, you're like, wow, I can't believe it. And, and I've even had stuff, have you ever noticed, have you ever had something in the Bible like, man, what in the world is that about? Oh, well, I don't know. And you close your Bible and you go off and then something happens in that day where you go, wait a minute. I think I know what that's about. Like, it's like the Lord just kind of reveals it to you, you know? Um, but uh, I find it interesting that Jesus just narrowly quotes all three times uh, from Deuteronomy chapter eight, two times, and Deuteronomy chapter six, one time. Um, where we are in the Bible is where we're at in life. I wonder if Jesus would just, was just reading from Deuteronomy. That's just, the reason I ask that question is that that's what happens uh, to, to a lot of us, I think. So, um, so he, you know, Satan wants Jesus to worship him. And by the way, whatever you worship, that's what you will serve. That's an important thing to remember. And Satan knows that. If Jesus were to fall down and worship Satan, suddenly Jesus would become servant to Satan, which you can even imagine that. Uh, thank the Lord he didn't do that. What do you fall down and worship? Um, what are the things you uh, fall down and give your heart and love and affection to? Um, be careful with that. Um, we really need to focus on the Lord himself as our affection. So temptation number one, stone into breads. Temptation number two, kingdoms of the world. Temptation number three, uh, show that you are God. Uh, and we begin that in verse nine. It says, and he brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down from hence. Uh, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. Um, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering and said unto him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Notice just for a season, he's coming back. Uh, if you ever think, oh, I won against Satan, I, don't, I no longer am tempted with that sin, be careful. Uh, think Arnold, so that'll be back. That's, uh, that's what Satan does, he comes back. Now resist the devil and he will free from you, flee from you. Jesus resisted three times and finally Satan's gone. So there's some interesting patterns here about resisting temptation. Um, now in this particular one, show your God, this is Satan trying to get Jesus off course away from his mission. Um, Jesus would uh, really show that he is God by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave. Um, but Satan wants him to be derailed from that particular um, um, notion. So I love that Jesus didn't give in to this one because none of us would be saved if, if Jesus sinned. Um, now there's some Bible prophecy implications. I, I'm hesitant to go into this, but it is something for you uh, fans of Bible prophecy you might wanna note. The word pinnacle is interesting. What is the pinnacle of the temple? Now you might be thinking the steeple. Uh, did the temple have a steeple? Uh, what was the highest point of the temple? And man, people have done uh, work on this, trying to figure out what, what exactly is the pinnacle of the temple? And we all think of kind of the highest point. Um, but it's interesting when you look at the, um, the, the, word, uh, the, the word pinnacle, um, the Greek word is a strange word. It's hard to pronounce. Pernion. What'd you say? Yeah. Pernion. Look it up, it's a hard word to say. But if you look up the definition for this, pinnacle, you might better translate it as the word, a wing of the temple. Um, uh, it might be a pointed extremity on a wing of the temple, but it most, mostly means wing. Now this is interesting because which wing, then you ask, okay, if it's not just the high point of the temple, which wing is he gonna stand on? Well, the word is interesting, especially when you go into the Old Testament, um, do you remember who's gonna go and defile the temple in the Old Testament? Antichrist. Antichrist is coming to defile the temple um, during the tribulation period. Now, the reason I, I share this with you is that, that event, when, when abomination of desolation happens, remember Matthew 24, Satan's power through Antichrist, he's gonna set himself up during the tribulation to be worshiped there at the temple. But when you read, this is just kind of a freebie for you, something to think about. The, the Greek word is that weird word I just told you about, uh, um, but, but um, the, 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 the uh, Hebrew word that's used is, as a synonym is a different word. Let me show you that. In, in Daniel chapter nine, 
Verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of that week, you shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading, now mark the word overspreading, of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Huh? Well, this is that whole thing. We, it's a heavy study of, of the abomination of desolation uh, during the tribulation. I'm not gonna go into all this, but those of you who know that what this is about, this is talking about when Satan, through the Antichrist, um, sets himself up to be worshiped during the tribulation period. And it says, for the overspreading of abominations. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word overspreading is the word in the Hebrew, kanah, um, kanah which means the same thing it's the synonym of the Greek word uh, that, I, that I've been struggling with, tertillion, um, and, um, and the word kanaf, uh, it's, it's the exact same word. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the Greek word tertillion. Uh, you say, okay, but well, who cares, whatever. Could it be, this is interesting to me, here's Satan standing on the kanaf, the tertillion of the temple and offering it to Jesus. Uh, this is the temptation. That's where he takes him. Where is Satan gonna try to be worshiped by the world? The same place that he does this to Jesus, whatever it is, is it the steeple, the point, the highest point? It's the wing, uh, the, the, the same exact location is the main thing you take away with there where Satan is going to set himself and commit the abomination of desolation. The same place Jesus was taken there here in Luke. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting freebie for you. Does that make sense to you guys? Kind of interesting, it goes in the interesting category to me. Um, so, you know, um, show that you are God. And that's exactly what Satan's gonna attempt to do uh, in, the, in the tribulation period, to be worshiped as God. All the five I will statements, he's gonna try to make that happen uh, in the tribulation period. So, for it is written, he says. Um, um, now, now, this is where you guys know this, uh, especially if you're with us in Matthew. Um, so Jesus is doing battle with a sword, with a spirit, the word of God. Um, so did you know that Satan can play with the word of God too? He pulls out his sword and he now quotes um, the, the scriptures. And what does he quote? Uh, Psalm chapter 91, verse 11 and 12. Um, and let's take a look at that Psalm carefully. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Uh, they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Um, you'll notice, uh, it just he just ends. It, now in Matthew's gospel, he even shorts it in a little bit more, but here it says, he just says, to keep thee. You, you know, he'll give his angels. If you jump off the pinnacle of the temple, uh, the angels will come and save you. Um, why? Well, the, the phrase that he, Satan misquotes quotes scripture here. Um, if there's one thing Satan's really good at is twisting scripture. And when you twist scripture, you end up with twisted scripture. And that's what Satan is doing here. Uh, he leaves out to keep thee in all thy ways. Why would Jesus hurl himself from the temple? Well, Satan uses a scripture. Well, because if you jump off, the angels will come and save you, right? And Jesus knows that, well, that's not the whole verse. Um, uh, me jumping off the temple would not be keeping me in the ways of the Father in heaven. The reason I can trust angels to be in my rescue is if I'm doing the will of God, uh, then the Lord will protect me and save me. Uh, Jesus knew what his mission was and he stuck with it. And, and even though Satan tried to misconstrue, uh, misconstrue scripture, he actually doesn't, uh, not successful. I hope you're careful. There's a lot of misquoting of scripture uh, in these days and Satan likes to use that. Um, so anyway, keep that in mind. Um, back to Luke chapter four, verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit uh, into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. Um, interesting little section of Luke. Um, this, this, these two verses, if you do the chronology or the harmony of the gospels of Jesus's life, what these two verses tell us, um, this is one year of Jesus's ministry. We just did it in two verses. One year just went by. Um, now, how do you know that? Well, the other gospels, if you put the timeline together, there's a bunch of things that happened um, after verse 13 and before uh, verse 16. And it's about a year that passes uh, by piecing other parts of the Bible together. Kind of interesting. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue 
on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Um, now, this, this synagogue in Nazareth, um, I've shown you snippets of this. When you go to the little town of Nazareth, um, this, is, this is kind of a fun place, but yeah, it's kind of hard to find. There's not a lot of tourists that go to this little synagogue, but it's way down under the ground because it was you know, two, cent, two millennia ago. Um, but they believe this very possibly is the synagogue of, of Christ there in Nazareth. It's kind of a fun place to, to go and visit and see. Um, if it is or not, not 100% sure, but at least they claim that. And then the town of Nazareth looks over the Valley of Armageddon. This is the Valley of Armageddon. That's Mount Tabor, the little bump there. That's the that Mount of Deborah, the, the prophetess. Um, but that's the Valley of Armageddon. And, and the thing that you gotta remember about Nazareth is it kind of has a cliff on one side um, and uh, that'll come into play here in a few minutes in our study. The same hillside, there's actually a section right in front of me there that's actually a cliff. So keep that in mind as we keep studying here. So, um, so verse 17, it says, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now pause right there. Um, where there's a period there, a little, a little red period in some of your Bibles uh, after the year of our Lord, that's kind of an interesting thing. You say, why? Well, did you notice it, um, something really happens that's strange here. When he finishes reading verse 20, it says, he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And verse 21, he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Um, this is great. I love this. Jesus read something that would have been somewhat familiar. You gotta understand, these people sat in the synagogues on Saturdays and heard these readings of scriptures all their lives. They grew up from children to old age, you know, hearing the scriptures. And so Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah. And, um, and but the, the reason I think their eyes are fastened on him, there's two main reasons I think they're like, what's going on here? Why are they fastening their eyes on him? He just read some scripture. What's up with that? Um, well, um, Jesus put a period where Isaiah the prophet put a comma. Uh, Jesus just ends right in the middle of a sentence of the prophet Isaiah and then closes the scroll and sits down. And people are like, you forgot to keep reading. Like, um, I get that sometimes. When I make a mistake and, and the congregation, I can just tell when something's wrong. I'm like, okay, what I do? You guys are all looking at me like, you forgot to read, like, like it happens, I, I know. But Jesus didn't make a mistake. What did Jesus leave unsaid? Um, this is really fascinating because it's Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. He read, from the scroll, the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, had sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, period. That's where Jesus stopped. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus leave that out? Was he just trying to be more positive? Um, that's what pastors do today. Oh, I don't wanna talk about vengeance. I only wanna talk about the happy stuff. Uh, setting the captives free, liberty. Man, let's just Joel Steen it up and talk about nice things and you're a winner and you're gonna live victoriously. Forget the wrath and hell and forget all that stuff. That's, I'm just being like Jesus. Jesus eliminated the day of vengeance. Wait a minute, hold your horses. Is that what Jesus is doing? Avoiding the controversial? No. What does Jesus say to these people? He says, when they're fastening their eyes, saying, like, you didn't even finish the sentence. Um, when, he, when he answered them, he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The only way Jesus could say today, that, that's all been fulfilled in your ears. The only way he could say that is if he leaves the last part out. Because question, when is the day of vengeance of our God? Anybody know when that is? It's the day of the Lord. Also, it's the rapture of the church. And from that point forward, we got the, the tribulation where God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. The day of vengeance is then. But that's gonna be closer to the second coming. His first coming was the first part of Isaiah's prophecy. So Jesus wasn't leaving that out just to try to avoid controversy. Jesus was leaving that out because he's saying, this day, 
I'm the one, Jesus, the first coming, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. He's the one who's gonna preach good news to the meek. He's the one who's gonna bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom to the captives and opening the prison to them that are bound in their sins and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. Jesus is the one who's fulfilling all that in his first coming. But his second coming is where the day of vengeance is coming. See, I love this. This is, this is Jesus being quite profound. So they fastened their eyes on, on him for, I told you the first reason, because he left part of the sentence out. But I also think they fastened their eyes on him because for him to only talk about the good stuff, well, that would be unusual for them. I told you on Sunday, the religious leaders, they were all into law and legalism and you know, the day of vengeance of our God would have been a common theme. But Jesus only spoke gracious words and that's where we pick it up, check it out. Um, so it says there in verse 22, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And that was our verse last Sunday. We focused on that verse. Um, that they marveled at his gracious words. That was the message of Jesus. And the gracious, gracious words would come because of his first coming. And grace wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, they sensed something big. But here's the problem. Once they sensed this, oh, his gracious words, and wow, this is stirring our hearts. But they said, well, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't that the way the human brain works? They start analyzing uh, and doubt enter in, uh, enters in, and, it, and that doubt, we'll check out what it causes. Verse 23, and he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here also in thy country. And Jesus said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Show us a trick like you did over in Capernaum. See, that's the part Luke left out in some of those healings that he did in Capernaum. And, uh, and Jesus knew the people would ask him to validate his ministry, to substantiate his authority by doing a miracle like he had done in Capernaum. But these people, Jesus knew that they would show him no honor because that was his hometown, the hometown of Nazareth. Um, now, um, in verse 25, it says that he kind of gives an illustration of why they were not gonna be able to hear, verse 25. But I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. That's Elias is just the Greek form of Elijah. When, there, uh, when, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and when great famine was throughout the land, all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent to save unto uh, Sarepta, a city of Sidon unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elias, um, the prophet, um, and none of them was cleansed save Naaman the Syrian. So what's, what's Jesus, why is Jesus talking about Old Testament people? God didn't save all the widows in Israel, but chose a Gentile widow of Sidon to you know, uh, help her. And he, he healed Naaman, who was also a Gentile, the Syrian. Um, and so um, you, you kind of say, well, what, what in the world's going on here? Why, why, would, um, why would these people wanna hear about what Elijah did or didn't do? Well, look at verse 28. They, this, whatever Jesus just said about Elijah, um, uh, you know, uh, healing the widow's woman or helping the widow woman and healing Naaman the leper, why would they get ticked at that? Verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to, um, to the brow of the hill. I showed you that on the video. Uh, whereupon the city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went on his way. <laughs> what did he do to get out of the crowd? <laughs> like, I, I don't know, but he somehow passed through the crowd. You gotta love that. Now, what in the world's going on here? Um, Jesus, why were they so mad? Jesus raises the question of election and he's basically saying, you know, through Elijah the prophet, God didn't save everyone. But even in your life, you know, in your history of your Israel, there wasn't even the Jews that Elijah came and, and he helped the widow woman who was a, who was a Gentile. And he helped the, uh, the Syrian general Naaman, uh, who was leprosy, who was also a Gentile. Um, so he cited two Gentiles who lived outside of the land of Israel. Um, uh, and he's trying to show them that they, his own people, were gonna miss the great blessing because they wouldn't accept 
him for who he was, just like the Jews rejected the Lord in the Old Testament. They would be like the many widows and the other people that were lepers in Israel who were not healed during the time of Elijah. That's what he's saying. You guys are gonna miss this. Just like our fathers missed Elijah's powerful healing power. Um, and so this said, what? What are you saying? We're not gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna miss something? Yeah, you're missing me as I speak. You're gonna reject me for a prophet's not without honor except in his own land. Um, uh, by the way, God is not done with the Jews. We're grafted into that vine. And that's an important thing we uh, need to be talking about in these days where um, replacement theology has kind of raised its ugly head with this Israel conflict and war. What's going on in Israel is kind of important. Well, Jesus got out of the way. We don't know how, but kind of miraculously passed through. Quickly, verse 31, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. Uh, you gotta love this. Down to Capernaum. This was uh, not geographically north-south down, but more of an altitude. Capernaum uh, was 700 feet below sea level, whereas Nazareth is 1,200 feet above sea level. So that's, that's what the Bible says up and down, by the way, ge geographically, that's what it means. Verse 33. Um, and in the synagogue, there in Capernaum, uh, there was a man, uh, which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. Notice the word us there, plural. Uh, let us alone. Uh, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Isn't it interesting that the demons acknowledge him, but the people of Nazareth wouldn't? Verse 35, and Jesus rebuked him saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. Uh, notice there's no green vomit, spinning heads. Jesus doesn't yell and shake and quake and get a sweat towel and run about. No, just come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him uh, in the midst, he came out of him and heard him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves saying, what word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Um, the demons know Jesus. Um, one thing you should know, when Jesus rebuked him and said, hold thy peace, um, literally the Greek, he said, be muzzled. Um, the reason that's important is, does anybody remember Jesus would say that same phrase at another time of cataclysmic problems? When did Jesus also say, be muzzled? To the storm. Um, which makes you wonder, was that storm like demonically inspired somehow? Remember Satan's the prince of this world, the God of this world. Could the, some of the storms have not been an act of God as your insurance company would call it? But sometimes storms I think can be coming from the evil one. Uh, Jesus used the same language with the storm as he used for this demon, demon possessed guy. Um, but Jesus is at his word, the demon comes out. Uh, verse 38. And he arose uh, out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever and they besought um, uh, him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. So miracle after miracle, now Peter's mom. By the way, this is Capernaum, the picture that uh, we took with our drone <laughs> when we were there. But um, uh, there's the Millennium Falcon right there. Um, <laughs> which uh, was there during Jesus's time. No, actually, um, what's funny is that little uh, millennial falcon uh, that's there was built by the Catholic church over what they believe was Peter's house. And there's a reason we do believe they knew where Peter's house was. It had to do with um, the preserving of Peter after Christ would die. Peter's house would become sort of known as kind of a, a major place. And it had to do with the shape of the building and all that stuff. So they built this thing. So you can't see Peter's house anymore because they built this thing over it. Um, but the white building there would have been the, 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 the synagogue and the rest of that little area was the town of, of Capernaum, a little tiny town on the seacoast there. It's kind of a cool place. Um, but notice Jesus is rebuking a bunch of stuff in this story. I just wanted to show you. He rebukes the demon. He also rebukes the fever. Uh, did you notice that of the mother? He rebuked the fever, uh, which is same kind of demonic language. And then later he'll rebuke a storm. We'll see that later on. Um, but there's some correlations in the rebuking of the devil and how Jesus does that, which is kind of cool. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, 
They all had, uh, they, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the devils also came out of many crying out and saying, thou art Christ, the son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak for they knew that he was Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place and the people sought him and came to him and stayed, uh, stayed him um, uh, and that he should not depart from them. And he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. So went to other cities uh, and we're gonna see that more as we get through more of the, um, the story. Uh, let me just conclude with this. Jesus, uh, he, he's already winning some of these important victories, especially against evil, Satan, and his powers, the temptations uh, that Satan brought him to, but also the demonic entities. I wanna show you that four quick things. Jesus's victory came by number one, prayer and fasting. That's part of this chapter, um, prayer and fasting. Uh, we see that in Luke 3, 21, Luke 4, 2. Um, are you ready to do battle by prayer and fasting? Uh, the second thing Jesus uh, uses as tools to win victory is the love of the Father. In chapter three, verse 22, um, remember, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The same God that loved Jesus um, loves us. And we know that we're of God and uh, the Lord's gonna help us overcome because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So the love of the Father. We also know Jesus was equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit. It says that in chapter four, verse one, we, we did kind of pass that over. And Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse um, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus was depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, you can have the power of the Spirit just for asking, the Bible says. Ask for the power of the Spirit. Um, and then fourthly, the word of God was a major part of Jesus's victory where Jesus said, it is written. Temptation is Satan's weapon and the word of God is the way we resist. Um, Ephesians 6, 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The word ruler there is interesting because um, this is almost like what Jesus is up against in this story. The Greek word for ruler is kosmokrator, which means high-ranking angel. So there's a high-ranking fallen angel um, in this case. And Jesus used these tools uh, to fight them, the, the tools that we just went over. So there you have it, Luke chapter four. Uh, and we'll finish right there and pick up chapter five next week. Um, but uh, let's pray and then I'll kind of fill you in on what we're gonna do. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. It's living, it's powerful, and help us now to apply these things. Um, Lord, that we would be ready to stand against the temptations of the devil, the wiles of the devil. Um, Lord, that we would uh, have those same tools that Jesus used um, at our disposal. Uh, your word, um, your love, the power of your Holy Spirit, um, prayer and fasting, all of these things are the things we need. So help us with that, Lord. Bless these, your people, as we go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.